Happy Sabbath. We are so glad that you've decided once again to join us as we complete our series of studies on the covenant. Now, this has been a quarter in which we have shared some nuances. And as we close with the promise of what life looks like as you accept this teaching into your own existence, we would pray, as we always do, that God go before us. So without any further ado, let me invite you to Close your eyes, bow your heads, open your hearts as we converse with our Savior. Father, we want to thank you so much for the promise of Jesus. We want to thank you because covenants that you have enacted with us are written with your finger, with the blood of your Son, with the promise of eternal life and a resurrection. But the language throughout all of those iterations of the covenant is your reckless love for us. And it is for that love that we want to thank you this morning. We pray that you go before us as we delve into the text where we pray in your name. Amen. You know the start. You've heard it before. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play, so we sat in the house on that cold, cold, wet day. Dr. Seuss, in 1957, decides to pen these words as the opening stanza to his beloved book, The Cat in the Hat. Legends has it that the poet and writer decided to start this story by simply matching the first two words he found in a list of words that rhymed. The story was intended to produce a new sense of awe and wonder to kids that were tired of reading or learning how to read based on a long collection of stories featuring two children named Dick and Jane. And so Seuss begins this tale, this tale of a cat who shows children how to play. This had been the first time that the imagination of, chi of children coalesced with their lives and in which these characters became active participants in the narrative. And so as the story develops, you find this idea of children finding joy, as Seuss would put it, funny fun. And as they begin to cause havoc in that home, and the question is always in the back of the reader's mind, what will happen when mother comes back? The question is finally answered at the very end in the last scene. As the cat unleashes a gizmo that is intended to clean up the room, and as he does, the house is restored to order. Mother comes back, and the reader is left with the cliffhanger, will the children tell them their wondrous tale? As I said before, this book was written in 1957, but in 2003, somebody had the idea of making a feature-length film entitled The Cat in the Hat. Now, the film did not match 
the awe and wonder of the book, actually it was ranked one of the worst movies in that particular year. And that got me thinking, thinking about reading to my children, thinking about Dr. Seuss and thinking about that awful movie. Got me reflecting on this idea of second acts, this idea of sequels. Now it's well known in, in show business that most time, most times a producer or a director decides to write a sequel, it almost never matches up to the original. I mean, how can you replicate the awe, the splendor, the wonder of seeing that cat erupt onto the scene? And then I think about the gospel. I think about the covenant. And my heart is moved at the realization that what is happening throughout Scripture is that God introduces a new element of grace as he proceeds through the covenants. First, well, first, as we've talked before, he speaks to Noah, and he promises that the world will never be destroyed through a flood, that the enmity and the battle between humans and God will cease and that God will never break that truce. But how do we get to know God better? Well, Abraham jumps in the scene. And as we learn about the Abrahamic covenant, we are moved with the realization that God chooses a person and a people to bless the entire world. And then we move on to Moses. And Moses tells us that God is desiring the sort of intimacy with us that would change our status, that would make us a holy nation, a chosen people, and a priestly kingdom. And disaster happens. Israel's home is a mess. They forget the covenant. And the question that the reader of Scripture is left with is, is very much the same question that we ask ourselves when we are reading The Cat in the Hat. Will they be able to get their home back in order? Prophet after prophet comes developing and sharing new concepts of the covenant, ideas in which God will perform heart surgery upon his people. And then it reaches its apex and the person and life of Jesus. And you find this idea that was there in the beginning, the idea of bringing peace between humans and God, embodied in a baby, a baby whom we call the Prince of Peace. And the question then, on this side of the resurrection, the question then that we need to ask as we have experienced the reality of the cross and the wonderful news of the empty tomb is, what about the sequel? What about the second act? How do we live out these promises of the covenant? How do we experience life amidst the blessing that God is desiring desperately to show, shower upon you? like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. And we're going to be reading one of my favorite epistles in the New Testament. It's the first epistle that the Apostle John writes. 
Now, by this point, we know that John is writing to a community. Scholars will tell you that it is perhaps a community that he himself has pastored. So John is starting to write to a people and a church that he has inaugurated. He knows their struggles. He has had them in his pastoral offices, dealt with their issues with children and marriages. He's answered their questions of faith on the, in those deep, dark nights of the soul. And as a loving father looking at his children, he offers this bit of advice for people asking themselves the question, does the gospel have a second act? That which was from the beginning, John writes, which we have heard and which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which the Father and was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make your joy complete. So a few things jump off the page. The epistle sounds very much like the opening of his gospel. John is pushing us, pushing us back, back to a space that exists even before time. He says, this is what was from the beginning. And what I find so amazing about John's language is if you're careful enough and deconstruct how he begins to weave these sentences together, the truth is there for you to see. And John is trying to say at the beginning, both of his gospel and of his epistle, that once you strip everything away, what is left is Jesus. What is left is not a church, it's not a people, it's not a set of beliefs or doctrines, it is a person. When we speak about God as a relational being, we do so because the best way we can talk about that God is as Jesus. The old theologian, Emil Brunner, puts it best when he writes that God is more than but none other than Jesus Christ. And so the covenant isn't a set of dogmas or doctrines. It's a person. If you understand the covenant to be the building block for the relationship, then you need to ask yourself the question, who is this relationship with? And the answer comes, I think, very clearly, at, le at least as John writes to his church. So what is the sequel of the covenant? Well, the sequel of the covenant, the second act in the gospel is that you and I are responsible for reproducing the same type of relationships that God has with us in the person and life of Jesus Christ. But here's the beauty. The beauty is that for John, all of this sounds great, 
But it is simply part of that knowledge that lives and dwells in the mansions of the mind. You know, these ideas that remain ethereal. And so John, as most pastors, attempts to be a bit more practical. And so he says, here's the good news about this person, this person that, that predates time. Here's the good news about this Jesus that we have both seen and heard, that we have actually experienced this Jesus, that our, word, that our hands have touched him, that we believe that it is his life, his death and his resurrection that gives us a new life because we have experienced it. And my dear friend, this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that if you are tuning in today to share this study with us, you have a story to tell. You've experienced covenant in some way, at some point. At some point, God is gra God's grace has been showered upon you, and as you have received it, you have experienced. You have experienced the sensory reality of the Word made flesh. And so before you share any complicated theological treatises or any faith propositions, you probably ought to start by saying, Hallelujah, amazing grace, I once was lost, but now I am found. Because at some point in your life, my dear friend, you have experienced that grace. You have touched it and felt it. You've heard the words and experienced the warmth enveloping your heart as you feel completely and utterly at peace. And maybe that's what we as a church can offer. Maybe that's the covenant that we can make with a world that lives and moves in ever-increasing anxiety. Maybe we can share, we can share our experiences of this Jesus. Life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim that we have seen and heard it. Notice that it's not enough to simply experience. John understands that the first act that the church is called to, the first covenant that the church has with the world is that of witnessing. We have been called to witness the reality of Christ. But that's not where John ends. John says the second act of the gospel is this. You not only are called to witness, but you are called to proclaim. And what are you called to proclaim? Or are you called to proclaim your experiences, your reality, your transformation, your story with the gospel? You have been called to proclaim your understanding of what the covenant is. And as you do that, something happens to you. Something happens to us. We have fellowship. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son and with Jesus Christ. So notice that John is developing this very carefully nuanced argument. He starts by saying, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that the whole purpose of this book is the person of Jesus. And I want you to know 
that you have been called today as a body of believers to witness to the reality of both the cross and the empty tomb. And as you witness that reality, as you receive the breath of life and it fills your lungs and you go out and experience the new reality that is grace and faith in Christ Jesus, you now move to the responsibility that you have with the rest of creation, and that is that of proclamation. So first, we start with Christ. Then, we move on to share what we've witnessed, our experiences with Him. Those experiences then feed the preaching and teaching of the church and its mission and covenant towards proclamation. And then, then it is those experiences, the diversity and richness of those experiences that provides us fellowship with one another. Notice that John is not saying that fellowship comes from believing the same things or from understanding every single T and I in the message in the same exact way. The unity comes because we find some commonality in our experiences. Proclamation leads to fellowship. And fellowship in the body of Christ leads to unity with the Father and the Trinity. Which also could be then surmised that disharmony and disunity and division and rancor and intolerance in the church leads to disharmony with the Father. God is calling us, and John is pleading with us, as a pastor would with his congregation, to be united. But not dogmatically. The covenant is here to unite us through experiences. Now think about everything we've talked about during these 13 weeks. Now think about Noah and his sons emerging from a boat and now having to share, sharing the responsibility of repopulating the world, sharing the responsibility of conveying the message of a God that carefully constructs a nave, an ark, to offer some reprieve from the wind and the waves outside. Now, I'm sure that their experiences in the, through those 40 days and 40 nights of storm and through those endless months of simply static navigating in the sea was different. But they are united by their commonality of the shared experience of survival and of emerging from that boat. And then Moses comes. And the people of Israel might have experienced those Ten Commandments and what happens at Sinai in different ways. But what unites them is the communal and covenantal language of priestly kingdom and holy people, chosen nation. And then when you jump, you jump and you move to the prophets and how each of the prophets had a different contextual reality. You know, Amos speaks as a shepherd and Jeremiah speaks as somebody who is deeply distraught. 
And yet they, they share in their dream, their dream that once upon a time, God will be reconciled to his people. The gospel writers from their different experiences share in their reality that Jesus is God incarnate and that he has risen to dwell at the right side of the Father. And so the covenant calls us as a community to strive for touch points. The covenant is about commonality. And so my question for you is, how are you engaging in the enterprise of covenant building? Are you focusing merely on the unique relationship that you have with God? Are you saying, my God and I? Or do you choose? Do you choose to go on that treacherous track and find the relationship with God, not only with you, but with other people, and then Try to weave those stories together. You proclaim what you witness. But you witness different things, and so proclamation is different. But in that differences, in those differences, Christ and Christ alone unites us. And that is what the covenant is. It's a broad expression of love that allows for communal touch points. And that's the second act of the gospel. That's the sequel. You and I are the sequel. Do we have enough courage to go out and find those places of connection? Joey, it's been so good to have 13 weeks of covenant. Let's talk about the, as you've called it, the blessings of the covenant. Yeah, the blessings of the covenant. It's been an incredible journey just seeing how the covenant builds. You know, you masterfully um, swept us through both from Noah to Abraham to Moses to the prophets and then to Jesus. Um, and it, it really does. The covenant just kind of, kind of continues to build on itself. God continues to expand on, on what the covenant is. But at the heart of it is, is this relationship mm. that you're talking about between us and, and him. So that's that was beautiful. Um, it's been a great journey. It has, it has, Joey. I think, I think for us though, the there is a disconnect, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it's difficult for families of faith to find those touch points because scripture seems like this wonderful book, mm. but it's written in a different context. It's sometimes written with a uh, different worldview and different languages. And so then you're trying to say, okay, I love the promises and the tale that scripture is trying to tell, mm -hmm. but I don't know how to apply that to my life. Yeah. So how do we live out this reality of a covenant that is ever expanding in the context of a church and a church that is full of differences and sometimes full of challenges and sometimes full of their own unique uh, or its own unique realities in the locations and the, the places that we've called, been called to minister to? Yeah. You know, I, I like what you said about how at the heart of the covenant, is, it, it is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus. And that that seems to be woven through not just not just when Jesus shows up in body at the incarnation, but also through Noah and Abraham mm. and Moses. These are all people who did have relationships. Like you, like you talked about, they had encounters with God. And so 
when we say that the covenant builds, what we're talking about is it's not just the it's not a uh, a list of do's and don'ts or a list of requirements for the covenant or, or right. even theory. We're talking about a relationship. Right. Their understanding of who God was and what God was trying to do continued to build as their relationship mm. with him um, grew. And so maybe one touch point is to, is to, like you said, when all is stripped away, all that's left is Jesus, mm. right? And so maybe, maybe the, the grounding for us is, at the heart of all of this that we're talking about is what does this all say about who God is mm. and how God God cares for us and what God wants to do in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and I can I can answer that question. I think we all can, right? With um because we know these things. I mean, one of the first songs that we learn how to sing is Jesus loves me yeah. this I know, right? But I think some of our friends out there and I don't know, I, I think as pastors we encounter this a lot, don't we? that you have people and, and people say, well, I've never had my Mount Sinai experience or I was never <laughs> called uh, to sacrifice my firstborn son and yeah. then my hand or my, I mean, I've wanted to sacrifice sometimes my kids, but but I've never actually heard an audible voice or I've never been part of a flood. I've never actually seen Jesus walking and healing people and casting out demons. Mm -hmm. Is the covenant for me? And if so, what, I mean, if you look at these experiences and these stories that are so majestic, how does little old me mm. fit in? What do I have to contribute to this story um, and to the sense, as, as you've been talking about, that the covenant is ultimately relational? Yeah. Like, do I, did I have a relationship with right, him when right. I don't have to sacrifice my puppy who... I love, but has accidents all over my oh, house, right? Oh, oh, you know, you know, you're preaching to the choir right now. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that, that's a good question. It's a question that a lot of people, because, you, you know, the stories that we often highlight it are the stories of dramatic turnarounds, mm -hmm. right? Um, someone who, who was stuck in drugs or whose life completely fell apart. They hit rock bottom and then God stepped in. Wow. They heard a voice or or he did a miraculous turnaround and all of a sudden their life is different. Wow. And that those are the stories that we tend to highlight. And yet that's not the reality for the most for the majority of us, I would I would guess. Right. But that doesn't mean that we don't have encounters with God mm. like you were, you were saying throughout your talk. Um, all of us have even regular experiences with God. And that's what I love about, about scripture. Of course, you know, we talk about, you know, the dramatic stories of Daniel in the lion's den or, uh, or David um, defeating Goliath. But those, even in the life of David, that wasn't the majority of his mm -hmm. life. He didn't defeat Goliath every day of his life. The majority of his life was the mundane of living life. And yet God was just as present in those moments and then as he was during during when he was um attacking Goliath. Mm. And that's something that David even noted, right? That God was with me when I was protecting my sheep. When I was right. just a shepherd right. and not a giant slayer, right. God was still with me. And it, in fact, it is those moments when God was with him as a shepherd that allowed him to be able to step up when he faced a giant, mm. right? So um, even in scripture, what we see is that God is available in the mundane mm. moments. So the question is then how do we see him? How do we start seeing God in the mundane moments? I don't know. That's a great say. question. I think that part of what we what we need to note is that every time that God calls covenant, 
something extraordinary happens. Mm -hmm. So you have Noah and a flood. You have Abraham and the whole Abrahamic cycle, which is punctuated by these encounters with the divine, if you will. Then you have Moses. And that's that's it. All the miracles and all of that ceases for, and, and you get you have a lot of mundane moments, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have the prophets. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of it, this extraordinary, miraculous era pops up again. Yeah. And then nothing. Yeah. And then you have Jesus, and then you have the early church, and then nothing. Yeah. And then we've kind of been living in this in the space of mundane moments for 2000 years. Mm. And so I think one of the things that that I am trying very hard to do, and I, I know that um, we do this quite a bit in in our team, is that we're trying to drench ourselves with scripture. Mm -hmm. And as we're we're living and breathing scripture and prayer, and we're dedicating ourselves to the discipline of scripture and prayer. Miracles are happening now. They're not miracles in the same in the same sense of what of what Moses or maybe Noah or even Abraham experienced, but they're miracles nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Because what you have is you have this group of people that is coming together, each with their own agendas, each with their own ideas, each with their own ways of looking and experiencing faith in God, and somehow you're able to subjugate all those things. And it's so funny how all of us different as we are since we've embarked on this process, we are starting to look at life in very much the same way. Mm -hmm. And I am just shocked at, at that development um, because I've been seeing how God is kind of taking all of these different people and stories and points of view and just weaving them together. And we are now being driven by this commonality that we have found, which is miraculous. So maybe, maybe part of what we need to get better at is recognizing that the mundane is the miracle. Hmm. Wow. And if we can look at the mundane as the miracle, mm. then maybe we can be more responsive to the covenant that God is calling us to participate in. Wow. The mundane is the miracle. That that's that's awesome we should put that on a bumper we Stick. should <laughs> trademark right now <laughs> <laughs> the mundane is the miracle i love that yeah because god is present in the mundane and maybe it's it's just a matter of being more in tune mm -hmm. with him so that we can recognize him mm -hmm. in the mundane and um john ortberg he has a a book called um or a, a study guide called um an ordinary day with jesus mm -hmm. and what i loved about that study God was the fact that he, he, he would make the point that it's not trying to recreate that extraordinary that, that where we find Jesus, it's actually just inviting him into, like you said, in the practices of our everyday life. So the question isn't how do we create a dramatic experience for ourselves, but more, how do we invite God into the everyday practices that we're already doing? What does it look like to, brush our teeth with God? Mm. What does it look like to wake up with God, to fall asleep with God? What does it look like to um, go to work with God? What does that look like? And when we start doing that more, we start recognizing that God is always with us, mm -hmm. right? That he's always present with us. And we hear this story after story. We've experienced this ourselves, right? The fact that, man, in, in little ways, and we call them little just because they happen in the mundane, 
But like you pointed out, they're not little. In in those ways that God steps into our everyday lives, when when He just makes this chance encounter with somebody that that needs a conversation about yeah. Him, when um, a friend we just offer to pray pray, and something comes out in that conversation in that prayer that we had no idea that God was moving mm. in that way mm. when we offered that that prayer, when. Um, we're with our kids and we're playing with our kids and we have this joy moment that's just full mm-hmm. of joy that God is present. So that God is present in those everyday moments, we just need to invite him in mm. and, and recognize that he's mm. there. That is so well stated. If if you then are able to recognize that, a, that the covenant is happening now, mm. and I think that is the ultimate problem that the people of Israel have yeah. in the Old Testament that they think right, that God has mm. abandoned them. And so they think that they can find security in a litany of things where there is no security because they, felt, they feel like God has abandoned them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing that the disciples are, are dealing with um, before, before uh, Jesus departs this yeah. earth. Uh, Fred Craddock, and I think we've shared this before, talks about kind of this encounter with with the disciples and Jesus and and how he visualizes the disciples acting like a bunch of kids, you know, your kids when you're getting ready and Sarah's getting ready to go somewhere and they're looking at you. And I know my boys do this all the time. They're looking at, at them and at us and they're saying, well, where are you going? When will you be back? And the ultimate question is, can I come? Yeah. <laughs> and Craddock says that that's those are the if, when when it comes to Jesus's last excursus, he's trying to answer those questions for the disciples, and and the answer there is clear, right? I will. I'm gonna send you a comforter, and I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Wherever you go, mm-hmm. I will be with you to the end of the world, yeah. and that means that the promise of covenant is one that is extended to us, as you said, uh, when you're brushing your teeth Mm -hmm. or when you're going to bed or when you're having a meal or when you're playing with your kids. And so I think that puts a new onus of responsibility on us as to how, what things we decide to do and how we decide to spend Mm -hmm. our time. Because we have now the responsibility of recognizing that we are living a covenant life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that demands a response from us. Uh, you can disagree with Jesus, you can fight him, you can follow him, but you can't, but Jesus will not be ignored. Mm. And so the claim that he is making on your life has to be recognized somehow. Yeah. Wow. You know, you when you were talking about the questions our kids ask us, um, where are you going? When will you back? And um, can I come with you? I just realized when they become teenagers, the roles will be reversed. Those are the questions we'll be asking them. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And the answer will be, um, I'm going out with my friends. Um, it's, I'm going to come back late. And no, you cannot come with us. Yeah. <laughs> to which I'll respond, you still need me to drive and your curfew is at 10 o'clock. Yeah. You know, the Israel... You, what you were saying about um, about this this idea of grabbing onto the the mundane and just and and living with God in those mundane moments, I realized that when you talked about the Israelites, they sort of they're like you said, their trouble was that they didn't do that. Um, 
and they sort of became dependent on the dramatic, mm. right? They like that's what you see in mm. in the book of Judges is mm. almost like they waited for the like they they would have that dramatic mm -hmm. experience where God delivers them, and then and then it would last a little while, mm -hmm. but then they would taper off because they had nothing. Nothing holding them to God, no, no practices that kept them close to God. And they needed another dramatic mm -hmm. thing for God. And that was just like the cycle over and over again with the Israelites. And honestly, a lot of times that's the cycle that we live in our lives, right? We wait for the dramatic to carry us through to the next mm -hmm. dramatic moment. And what you seem to be saying is that we can't just wait for the drama. We can't just wait for God to just step in for the dramatic moments and the dramatic saves. That's, it's almost like, I remember a friend of mine who was going through um, dental school and, you know, they have those dental clinics where people come in and, and they get reduced prices for their, for their cleanings and whatnot. And there was this man that came in that he told them he would never brush his teeth. He would only, he would wait for cleanings to get his teeth clean. So he would, Ooh. he said, you know, I, I get cleanings every six weeks. And and then and then I don't have to brush my teeth. I just wait for the cleanings. And they Ooh. said, "No, that's, that's not how this works, right? The cleanings by themselves, they're helpful, yeah, but they're not meant to carry you through <laughs> to the next cleaning. You still need to do the everyday oh, brushing and flossing goodness. and whatever of your maintenance of your teeth. And yet, that's sort of what we do for God, yeah. right? Like whether it's waiting for Sabbath. Mm. or waiting for um, a retreat where we have this, mm -hmm. or I'm waiting for a mission trip. We, we kind of wait for those dramatic moments to kind of carry us through, but that's not a healthy mm. way to live a spiritual life, right? Mm. We need the everyday practices. Mm. We need the mundane practices that don't seem to be all that exciting, and yet that's where God is, and that's what allows us to experience more of the mm. dramatic and more of the presence of God in our everyday life. So like scripture reading, prayer, these things that are just sometimes just as about as exciting as, as, um, as brushing our teeth. Uh, when we do them regularly, they become more exciting, right? I'm still, I'm still in shock over that really gross analogy. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. But it works really well. It, it really does work well because I think what you're saying really hits on the key problem that we have in spiritual life. And that is that a lot of times, if we are dependent on drama to maintain our spiritual fortitude, then we start chasing that drama. And that's what Israel does, doesn't it? Like, I think you, you masterfully stated the book of Judges, which is a maddening read, yeah. right? Because it's this formula. God rose a judge, and then the people were saved, and then again they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's like, really nice. And it just it just keeps going. And then by the end of the book, you have this story that I mean, I wish I wish I could have edited the Bible because it would have saved me a lot of questions that my kids are asking when when we do our yearly Bible study. I just by the way, they don't know that uh, that Judges is a two chapters longer because we always <laughs> skip that story. But the whole point of that story is that Israel was so dependent on the drama that then they chased the drama. Mm. They, 
the book ends with with this desire of Israel to have a king. Yes. And the king is ultimately what what begins this breakdown in uh, Jewish society that ends with, you know, as we've talked about many times, exile and all this other stuff. And so I think what you're calling us to do is to have these high point experiences be a celebration Mm -hmm. of our spiritual life and our journey and not the content of said spiritual life and Mm -hmm. journey. Wow. You know, I never thought of it that way before, that their decision to, to, to want a king really was the turning point for them on this this path towards destruction and mm-hmm. exile and all of that because i mean that's it, that is the story i mean, I I've, I've been reading kings as as a part of my um devotional reading and that that's basically what the book of kings mm-hmm. is it's just this path of terrible king after terrible mm-hmm. king after terrible king that makes things worse and worse and worse for the people of israel until everything is everything oh. is gone wow and it became it came about because they basically abdicated their um their responsibility for their own relationship with god mm-hmm. and said okay we're gonna have a king instead yeah. and he's gonna make this decision instead and yet that's that's what many times we do right we we make we become dependent on the church services mm-hmm. or other programs to kind of carry us through and there needs to be some personal responsibility to say this is my relationship with god it's 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 a shared relationship I have communally with others, but I still have something that I need to put into it every day yeah. in order for it to grow. Yeah, I uh, I I I used to use this language a lot um, as a, as a young pastor, right? With uh, particularly when you want to invite your people to come and be part of the worship service, especially you know when you're when you're a young pastor. Uh, Preaching probably isn't your forte, and so they they're forced to sit through these sermons that yeah. have no head or tails. Oh, and man. so I would tell people, come be fed. And as you're talking, we we use that language a lot, don't we? Like, oh man, this sermon, I really was fed today, or this retreat was so great, it really fed me spiritually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what you're saying is if you only eat one week, <laughs> once a week, or once every time you have a retreat, you're going to be really, really thin and probably not healthy. Yeah. And so maybe, um, maybe Sabbath and these retreats and these high points are dessert. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the food it is what happens in these really mundane practices, right? As yeah. we were saying, the miracle is the mundane. Mm-hmm. Um praying, Bible study, service, uh, that ex- those experiences that we're, we're, we're actually living out the covenant probably are what keeps keep us nourished. Yeah. And the other stuff is just the cherry on top. Yeah, it's so true. And one of the practices that's been helpful for me, um, just, just trying to find the miracle in the mundane, has been like at the end of my day, I like to review my day with God, mm-hmm. um, almost like, um, almost like in football they review tape, mm-hmm. right, to learn and to grow. So I just kind of walk through my day with God and you know ask for forgiveness for, for those things where <laughs> I've messed up. I I praise God for the moments where I see Him step in, and what that's done for me is that it 
enables me to be more aware of how mm. God is moving. Because I've done that. At, when I do that at the end of my day, what I found is during the process of my next day, I'm more aware and looking for those moments mm. as well. And so, yeah, I mean, those are that's one of the practices I like to do that to help me find the miracle mm. of the day. I, I don't know. How about you? If you have. Yeah, so I do. And mine is mine is a little different um, because the only quiet time I have is really early in the morning. Um, usually, you know, we'll get home and I'll, I'll get home rather late and it's put the kids to bed. <laughs> and by the time they're asleep, my kid, my my youngest, he doesn't like sleeping alone anymore. So, oh. I, so we either Linda or I have to stay oh, in wow. the loft and he'll say, Daddy, mommy, are you in the hallway? And we have to say, yeah, we're still here. And it's 10 o'clock at night. So, uh, so it's been it's been kind of uh, kind of rough. Um, by the end of the day, Linda and I will talk for a bit and then it's we're both asleep. Yeah. But early in the morning, what I like to do is I'll, I'll wake up and I'll say, God, I've got this really simple prayer for you today, kind of reflecting on the day before. And this is even before we go into into the word and, and we and we actually go into petition and intercession. I say, God, I have something really simple to ask for you today. Please make me better than I was the day before. And sometimes that's really difficult to do because I've had a great day with God. <laughs> but most of the times that's a really low bar I'm setting <laughs> because you're focusing on all these moments, right? Mm. That you that you haven't acted in the way that the covenant demands you to act. And yeah. so you're thinking about that and you say, okay, well, we got a chance today mm. to live some covenantal living. Yeah. And sometimes it's just, can I do a little better? Can I keep my covenantal relationship with God yeah. just a little better. And I find it so moving, right, that John says, I'm writing all of this, right, mm. this wonderful reality that is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ so that your joy might be complete. Mm. And so I think the point of being cognizant of what God is doing, whether it's at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, is just saying, man, in spite of it all, you moved with me throughout the day. Or in spite of it all, I'm hoping that you move with me during this day. Mm. And that, I think, produces joy. And it's a different type of joy. It's not the elation that uh, that pursuing the dramatic uh, provides. It's not that kind of ecstasy. It's, it's a joy that comes from recognizing the miracle in the mundane. It's mm -hmm. a long-lasting contentment that stays with you, hopefully, throughout your Christian experience. Yeah. And and it's kind of like the, the joy that comes from a healthy relationship with a spouse, right? Mm. A growing, I mean, they tell you when you're dating that it's not going to be all romance and and dramatic moments with your with your spouse after you get married, right? It's not going to be like the first few months of dating. Um, but I don't know if I could survive if every day was like the first few months of dating. That's, oh man, that would be too much. Um, but there is a joy. There's an amazing joy that I think an even better joy than, than just the dramatic moments mm -hmm. that comes from um, having this re relationship with, a, with someone that you know loves you no matter what, that you love no matter what, that you are journeying through difficult and amazing times together, having a, a, this partner through the adventure of life that God gives to us. Um, and and that 
that is the type of relationship I want with God. I don't just want um, a hot and cold mm. relationship. I want a relationship with God where I'm just, I'm with him through the hot and cold and he is with me through all of that. And yeah, and that comes from finding the, like you said, the miracle in the, the mundane. Which is, I think, why it's so moving, Joey, that God speaks to us, particularly when it comes to covenant, he speaks to us communally. Mm. Because look, think about it, friends, the purpose of community is to simply live life together. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this all the time here at church, right? Mm -hmm. Community is doing life or living life together. Um, I remember just talking about kind of the high emotionally charged experience that is dating. I remember reading poetry to Linda and saying, baby, I want you and me to be like Neruda. Um, <laughs> Neruda has this sonnet, which is uh, sonnet 18, which ends by with the poet saying, so close that when your hand is on my chest, it is not your hand, but my hand because wow. we are one. It's like, yeah. Well, it's very difficult to have that when you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old climbing <laughs> into hands, bed, right? Hands are in Who's between. There, they're in between and saying, Daddy, Mommy, I had a nightmare. Can I come into bed? But you know what? There's a different, like you were saying, there's mm -hmm. a different kind of joy mm -hmm. because there's a joy that comes with a life lived together. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's why God is calling us to experience covenant through all of these experiences and stories that we share as a community, because we're saying, hey, let me share with you my hot my hot experience or my cold experience, yeah. like this high point moment. And then you share your high point moment. And then you share your high point moment. And you get kind of this, this wonderful weaving together of all those stories. Yeah. And that provides you kind of this life lived together, mm -hmm. which I think ought, at least if, if we take John at his word, ought to provide us joy and joy that is complete. Amen. Yeah. And I love how John um, writes about how his fellowship is with mm -hmm. them and also that mm -hmm. fellowship is with, with God. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, that joy, that connection in finding, and that's found in the mundane, like you said. Oh. Not not in the dramatic moments, although those those are nice. Those are nice once in a while. Those are nice, but um, they're not what carries us through. Well, we did not have a mundane conversation. We had one that was miraculous, and so this is definitely a high moment for me. But Joey, as we close this quarter, and as you always do, would you would you pray with us? Oh, it would be my pleasure. Let us bow our heads, <sighs> dear, gracious, and loving God our God who is with us in the mundane. Help us to be able to see you. See that you are surrounding us even in those moments when we can't see you, um, that you are like the angels around Elisha and his servant, um, that you are ever present um, even in the mundane. So open our eyes, help us to find you by, by inviting you in everyday practices to be with us so that we can see the miracle in the mundane is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Sabbath. Go out and live. Live this second call of the gospel and live it out miraculously amidst the mundane. May God richly bless you. Mm -hmm.